So, uh, welcome uh, to the Menace of the Workers, looking at uh, work organisation. Patrick, uh -oh. Patrick, are you talking to us? Hello? Hello, who are you talking to? Hello, I'm talking to my partner. Did a special issue in Mexico, it's fantastic in the journey, did you see it? Okay, where are you? So, as you can already tell, we have Patrick Cunningham, who's introduced himself from Mexico, the Autonomous University of Mexico, where he's currently on strike and has been for seven weeks. And this is going to be talking about strike play in Mexico. Uh, then we've also got uh, Robert Oves, um, who's going to be talking about uh, credible strike threats. Uh, Robert is an editor at Notes Below, um, which is the project that's hosting this little mini stream within historical materialism. Um, I'm also an editor, and just to plug us very quickly, uh, we're a platform um, based across the UK and the US, uh, looking at class composition and workers' inquiry, trying to take a view from below on the workplace um, to build a new uh, rank of car labor movement fit for the 21st century. So yeah, if you're interested in that, notes from below the board. Um, we've also got Emmanuel Ness, who's going to be talking about uh, the labor movement in South Africa, and Sam Mason, who's going to be talking about baristas and works inquiry. So, um, to get started, Emmanuel, do you want to go first? And then sure. Give me a, give me a nod. I should introduce myself. Okay, yeah, thank you very much, Colin, for that. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is a presentation on South Africa. I've done a lot of work there. Um, and uh, this is probably a time in South Africa that's probably the most uh, um, interesting since uh, the strike waves of 2014, 2015, into 16, because we now have the emergence of a new socialist party. Uh, the, the Socialist Workers Revolutionary Party, and uh, also uh, a new strike wave amongst former uh, temporary employment service workers or people in the uh, contracting contracted workers. I spent a, a lot of time in South Africa over the last several years doing research uh, both within the major trade union, uh, I should say one of the major trade unions, but the largest in South Africa, the uh, NUMSA Union, the National Union of Mine Workers of South Africa, as well as amongst uh, worker rank and file associations that were associated with, with the Contingent Workers, um, it's a very interesting name, Contingent Workers Advice Office in Germiston, South Africa, just out of, South, uh, of Johannesburg. So, um, yeah, I'm also editor of Journal of Labor and Society, and uh, Robert is also on the board, and I see several people, no, one person in the audience is also on the board, uh, Tony. Um, and uh, we just did a special issue on rank and file activism in Mexico, which uh, has seven or eight articles on it, so it's all for, it's actually, if you go online now, it's free. So uh, it's a March Journal of Labor and Society. So here, you can actually skip to the third uh, uh, slide here. Um, you know, I think it's very clear, uh, it is not a surprise to anybody that the uh, post-apartheid era, uh, widely known, is a period uh, in which uh, uh, there has been a greater degree of democratic participation amongst uh, the population because black South Africans had the, now have the right to vote. They make up now about 90% of the population in South Africa. And yet at the same time, South Africa, by the year 2012, 2013, uh, had become the world's major uh, country in the world that had the highest level of inequality based on the Gini coefficient. So uh, it's somewhat of a very interesting uh, country to examine because of this degree of inequality. On the one hand, you have uh, the kind of Western European style 
uh, life uh, for Europeans or people of European origin in South Africa. And then uh, conversely, uh, we have 90% uh, of the population living under conditions, uh, I would say, of, uh, of poverty uh, and some a bit above. But so this uh, discrepancy between the uh, white population the, uh, and the black population, of course, there are others, is fairly great. So that um, uh, over the same period, uh, you know, there were promises made. We have a tripartite government in South Africa. There were promises made by the uh, African National Congress, um, the South African Communist Party, as well as uh, the coalition of South African trade unions, COSATU, uh, uh, that promised that uh, there would be a transformation of labor conditions that workers would have greater levels of rights, uh, that there would be social subsidies that are provided to the working class, uh, the black working class in this case. Uh, of course, there are other working classes of different varieties, but this is the major one, as well as housing and other kinds of uh, benefits, and this has not taken place. There has been a high level of technological advancement in a um, number of industries, most notably the uh, industry, uh, uh, the mining and colliery uh, industry, uh, as uh, the South African economy has uh, sort of uh, plugged along, but not has really not has, has not advanced itself to the levels that most people would have uh, uh, predicted. Because the South African, many people would argue that the compact that was achieved in 20, uh, forgive me, 1994, this constitution had created um, uh, the basis for this change. But uh, as we all know, there's a, a provision that con there's no provision in the constitution that. Uh, ask for the redistribution of wealth and um, the so-called decolonization of the society by the white population, which owns the vast majority of the resources. And so at the same time, there's been high levels of technological change, efforts to uh, reduce labor costs, and they've been done through two primary uh, levels, uh, as we all know. One is through um, uh, high levels of te technology, and the other is through trying to re reduce uh, working class uh, wages. And one of the major ways, and this is actually something that precedes the end of apartheid, one of the major mechanisms by which that has been done is through creating a uh, population, a labor market that had no rights whatsoever. And one would argue that under the new system uh, of uh, post-apartheid, there have been a number of efforts to uh, um, create higher levels of equality in the society. But uh, at the same time, there's been a lot of two major processes that have been going on. Uh, the first would be contracting out of jobs, and the second would be outsourcing of jobs. There's a third major pillar that I would argue is you know, in addition to that, and that would be the growth uh, of the continuation, in fact, perhaps expansion. I have 10 minutes left, so I better get going, but I want to give you a background. The expansion of uh, uh, um, migration, internal migration in South Africa as well as regional within Southern Africa. So uh, there has been, uh, let me see if I can read this, uh, trade union subordination. I'm just going to go through these very quickly. It reminds me of Patrick Bond. Uh, temporary employment services are, and the emergence of the labor broking uh, system, broking system, uh, that uh, uh, essentially this uh, is the preliminary uh, slide that will, if you go on to the next one, you'll see that there's been a large growth uh, the temporary uh, employment services industry uh, has contributed and acted as a driver of national employment growth since 1994. The nature of the South African economy and the structural changes that have occurred over the last 20 years uh, have uh, lent themselves to this type of employment relationship. Uh, go on to the next. Thank you very much, Colin. 
And then you can see that uh, at the bottom of this uh, slide, you may not be able to see, see the TES sector uh, is one of the major growth uh, sectors of the economy, temporary, temporary employment services. Uh, and you can see that uh, mining and primary uh, agriculture, et cetera, has declined if you go to the far right uh, column. You can go down to the next slide over the last 20 years or so. Um, and uh, this uh, also shows you that there's a large sector of the population employed in temporary services, uh, uh, especially in elementary, amongst elementary workers and service and sales workers, uh, but also uh, in uh, industrial workers. Uh, uh, to a large, if you move on to the next uh, slide, uh, uh, I guess this will fit. This is kind of a table I put together. That, uh, uh, I guess it doesn't fit in the slide. I don't have access to it. I just see now that you go on. Essentially, shows you that there's been a kind of a economic. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. It's okay. We we can go on. That uh, something like uh, five million South African uh, workers are in the temporary employment services. Uh, and uh, over the last several years, since 2012-2013, as the South African tripartite system of uh, capitalism uh, uh, has uh, undergone a dramatic change, there has been a gradual uh, effort uh, amongst contract workers to uh, uh, gain higher levels of wages. So that there, you know, again, I started out this by discussing there is, uh, on the one hand, you have uh, uh, a uh, rank and activism amongst workers who are in unions and then uh, workers outside of unions. Here's an example of uh, the casual workers advice office in Jerusalem, which is just outside of uh, Johannesburg, maybe about 15, 20 miles. And, um, you know, essentially, for what is a temporary employment service worker? It's a, somebody who uh, works for a period, a very long period, could be years, five, 10. In fact, there's some people who've worked in this industry. Uh, before the end of apartheid, uh, and um, uh, and continue to be temporary, so that they're working on, uh, in many cases, the same shop floor and so forth, but frequently for contracted employers. So uh, this would be the Simba Workers uh, Forum, which is a name of a uh, workers' union that's formed by the Casual Workers Advice Office. Actually, it's formed by the workers themselves. They have assemblies of something like um, I haven't gone to them on successful things. in a succession of weeks, uh, 500 to 1,000 people in a union hall. And uh, the Simba workers, they're chip, uh, it's a chip manufacturer, you'll see in the uh, slides, that they wanted was to re restore conditions of employment, transport allowances, and there's been a high level of discrimination against women, especially women uh, who are, are pregnant. Um, and then here's, uh, on the other hand, uh, this other track, uh, open these slides, uh, uh, the NUMSA, which defeated uh, uh, the temporary services industry, uh, and these include the largest companies in the world. So uh, Acceler uh, Metal is the largest steel company in the world, which contracts its work uh, uh, here uh, through uh, uh, a labor broker in South Africa. Go on, there's a lot of slides, so we can go very quickly through this. Uh, uh, Acceler Metal labor brokering at, at the world's leading steel producer, um, there has been a high level, okay, so there was a decision last year, uh, uh, 2018, uh, in July uh, 26, 
that uh, a constitutional court, the main one in South Africa, decided that people who work at the same place for three months or more are not contract workers, but they should be employed by one employer, not two. So in the case of, for instance, PepsiCo or Simba Chips, uh, they're not employed by the subcontractor, but they're employed by their uh, contractor. I think we should just go through these slides very quickly. And, uh, again, um, this is the decision itself. Uh, uh, NUMSA uh, asking for uh, the end of the labor broking system and winning, uh, and now making demands against Acceler Metal, the uh, large uh, employer uh, of steel workers in, a, in southern Guatemala province, which is again about, I'd say about 40, 50 miles outside of South uh, Johannesburg, an incredible place. Uh, uh, NUMSA rejected the employer offer, which was a, a bowhead. Uh, uh, there is a strike that's actually now ongoing uh, of several thousand workers uh, at the steel plant who uh, were, uh, for a very long period of time, contract workers, and now they are steel workers who are uh, ostensibly directly employed. The employer is, uh, the name of it is uh, Realtree. Trading, uh, it's an incredible name, uh, is in fact resisting the, uh, the strike uh, uh, that's now ongoing as we speak. Go ahead with this picture of a labor broker at Excel and Natal. Uh, uh, there's also, here's an example of the state, uh, you know, I know Robert does a lot of work around uh, uh, state violence. Is a lot, South Africa is a place with a tremendous amount of state violence against workers. There's been already a number of workers arrested, at least 10. At, the initial days of the strike, and then subsequently, there has been uh, a number of uh, attacks against workers by South African Police Service. You can go ahead and uh, continue to go ahead. I'm just going to slip through. I think I have like five, four minutes left. Um, and you know, one of the interesting aspects of this is building a community relationship, which is taking place. And you know, I think NUMSA, a lot of uh, people have uh, uh, a range of perspectives on NUMSA and uh, the union. I, I have a, a tremendous amount of admiration. I spelled it wrong here. Uh, a tremendous amount of uh, admiration for its leadership because it believes in building a front. I know that it's been very difficult. They were kicked out uh, of the uh, Tripartite Alliance uh, in 2014, December, uh, and they have for the last several years tried to build a new federation of labor because they were kicked out of Pasatu, part of the Tripartite Alliance, as well as a new uh, party. And so. Uh, they're building that party through the United Front. Some of you may be familiar with it. And that United Front is a systemic organization throughout, not systemic, it's a, a, or a coalition of many different organizations, hundreds of, or, many hundreds of organizations throughout South Africa. Uh, and here's one that uh, is, has joined uh, the strike uh, in supporting, actually, uh, issues that are important to them, like uh, the lack of electricity, which is becoming a very important issue. Uh, we can go on. I think my time is probably two minutes. Two minutes. Uh, here, now, here's uh, you know one point I wanted to make. It may be somewhat controversial in the, these quarters. Accelerate uh, uh, Mark Mital uh, workers join a Marxist-Leninist Socialist Workers Revolutionary Party. I know to many that could sound like a Trotskyist name, but in fact, they do believe in a dictatorship of the proletariat. They're anti-imperialists. They believe in uh, the development of a vanguard party. Something that I think is very interesting. And uh, some of you may have met with Erdogan Jim. He doesn't. I, I think he's principled in that way. He's come here to New York City, spoke to hundreds of trade unions and so forth. Yes. Uh, and so uh, here we have this other type of uh, organization. Uh, you know, people have a high level of admiration for these small uh, kinds of rank and file organizations. I do too. And I would argue that, in fact, the Accelerate Metal workers were, in fact, rank and file workers who joined up with a powerful 
union of 400,000. In this case, uh, this uh, the Jervistan Workers Organization led by, uh, well, he doesn't like to call himself leader, uh, uh, Schroeder, I forget his first name, uh, Iksan Schroeder, uh, has founded, and they're doing very good work. Uh, like I said, this is where uh, you have the rank and file organizing going out outside, going on outside of the trade unions. But how can you have a trade union of Simba workers without a broader, stronger union front is a question that uh, needs to be addressed, not just in South Africa, but throughout the global south and throughout the world. If we, I know there's been a Simba chips. Uh, again, here's a PepsiCo chips, you can call it. Uh, here we have Doritos in the United States that con controls all those firms. Uh, uh, limited conversion of temporary. There was this new law. I have one minute left. There's conversion. Ronald Wesso, that's a person I had interviewed a number of times uh, at CWAO, amongst others, um, you know, talked about the degree to which this has not been implemented, that 40% uh, of the workforce, 5 billion workers, were supposed to get permanent jobs, but did not. And this is the South African workforce we're referring to. They move on. Uh, uh, just move on again, just simple workers. Agcorp Broking is the subcontractor. Agcorp Blue, you can go on. I'm just trying to give... Uh, this is bad. The basis, I have a chapter written on this for a new book that's hopefully coming out. And uh, they organized a strike and they did not have to go on strike in April 2018 before the ruling because PepsiCo uh, could have been, uh, you know, they were concerned with the way they were viewed both within South Africa and internationally. Not to say they're a good company, they're just as bad as Coke. No, I wouldn't make any preference. I mean, there's been all these boycott campaigns, they're equivalent. But uh, so there was a victory amongst uh, these 600 workers, which was very interesting. Uh, and they did not have to go on strike, but there was a lot of uh, organizing move, uh, moving uh, uh, in the days preceding a strike call in April to go on. Um, so again, you know, one of the key points here is uh, you know, what kinds of uh, areas that uh, are possible for transformation or possibly we're seeing transformation in uh, NUMSA, an activist union in my view, uh, and I think the, a, case, a very strong case could be made for it. And the CWAO uh, as a kind of, you know, we, uh, in this country, we had a large uh, admiration for workers' centers. Um, I, th I think some people still do. Uh, I am somewhat uh, less uh, sanguine about the possibility of becoming uh, major sources of transformation because they don't believe necessarily in organization. Uh, that's also true. I would argue that the CWAO is a, and they're Marxist, there's no question about it. There's, there's really no, uh, they believe that the workers need to decide on their own, which is a good point. And I would argue the basis for, you know, the groundwork for a major uh, movement. Uh, we move on, we're just about done. Implications, I think this is the final slide. Uh, necessity to examine economic changes and material relations in research on labor struggles. I think we need to do that. Uh, I will probably advance that argument later. Restructuring of economic relations through subcontracting and outsourcing has increased uh, the severity, uh, or uh, profits by severely restricting wages in South Africa has grown in there in South Africa and, and, and Global South. Uh, the organizational question, autonomism, which is something that's very, I hear from other people today, uh, process of workers building rank and file institutions is a new phenomena as contemporary unions are unable to challenge capital as in the past, uh, and the occurrence, especially in the rapidly expanding new sectors of the economy, including uh, e-commerce, et cetera, and the importance of trade union and political organization, in my view. Uh, I would argue political organization is very important, and the latter frequently is viewed as an exogenous force. We need to, uh, you know, it's crucial to mobilize around local, state, and broader demands. 
uh, and victories. Okay, I think I'm finished. I think that's the last slide. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, 
final trick will after Syria and Hill. Um, so, uh, as the President of uh, State Terrorists, also 48,000 disappeared, also disappeared, again, mainly by the Mexican army and police. Um, the response to this uh, terrible level of violence in Mexico had, by the uh, has been a uh, so-called national guard, which was most of the, uh, which is kind of a combination of all the army, the marine, the police, in one force, they are militarized police force, which was supposed to be under a civilian head. Um, this has not happened. A new head just announced last week that it's a retired general. So the promise to uh, put the military forces in control is not kept. And uh, this policy uh, of military education will just keep the back coming because, um, as I said, the, the people responsible by the group are military people. Well, look at that, state terrorism, and of course, the deliverance of Um, uh, so the CNTE is 
from here, it struggles now, it's the new educational reform to pretty much the same as the old one. Um, and so yeah, uh, um, that is basically the situation uh, regarding the CNT and the educational reform. Uh, it still remains a powerful uh, movement, it's uh, opposed to the main teachers uh, union, which is SNGP, uh, the National Education of Educational Workers, which has over a million members, I think it's the largest trade in Latin America, but it is uh, historically and notoriously corrupt. Uh, its lead parties was Oka Espikoti Fondio, who even the uh, uh, corrupt Peña Nieto regime put into prison. Uh, one of the first things that Focus uh, Obrador did was to release, but again, uh, there's a lot of uh, speculation about what happened. Um, so, anyway, to talk about, uh, I also want to talk about the uh, strike wave. That has taken place in January this season. Uh, especially in Matamoros, uh, the town border, which is opposite Brownsville in Texas. Um, there has been uh, an upset of wildcat strikes in Matamoros among the Matamoros workers, uh, the assembly workers. Um, which today obtained industrial force in Mexico from our uh, vacuum workers that uh, Trump is so interested in uh, blocking uh, in exports to the United States. Uh, and uh, uh, so this, this right of locus of reform increased. Uh, Middle wave, I have to say, in the border area, which has a higher cost of living than the rest of Mexico, top United States. And uh, the effect has doubled the wage to approximately um, about $8, dollars, $4 dollars to $8 dollars a day. Um, he, uh, he was unintentionally promoted as. Uh, Strike wave, the employers, the both national and international, try to take advantage of the public of the minimum wage by eliminating the annual, uh, okay, fact, see this. The annual, um, the annual uh, payment uh, made every year for approximately uh, $500 to make up. Of, um, the increases that gave use and looking at the in real uh, So the employers this year tried, as the story report, double the salary, they tried to simply eliminate that payment. So the slogan of the strike group has been 20 percent uh, uh, on the uh, uh, on the side, and uh, the 32,000 peso pedial, which is about 5 out of 20, and you get that in dollars, about uh, 1,200 dollars annual payment. Uh, some fabulous fruits, the other aspect is that this is 
circuits strike against the union. The union is focused on the 60M uh, trade union, the Congress, adopted by the public, and um, they, uh, so they have worked on strike against employers and union. So that's been that way while they are fighting that problem. Some of the macro workers of the business have been successful at months. 20% of Mexicans, but it's very large by Mexican standards. Usually, the Mexican government employs prices in it, pay prices before 10 years. So, what was imposed in my case to be removed. And another piece is work to be sacked. And the pictures have been attacked by the police, the army, and, and the Britons. So, um, so the government has stopped again what we expected is promises to, to uh, not repress the people as And they have sent groups to press strike. Um, over 6,000 have been uh, sacked, and some. Uh, some businesses have to shut down the factories and forests. Nevertheless, uh, the strikes and strikes in other sectors, for example, fellow workers, uh, a garden strike, and a report that the strike only brings up to the strikes going on in about 70 countries around the country, um, beginning with the mining industry on the 1st of February this year, uh, which is still going to be finished tomorrow. After it will finish tomorrow, we will run the line tomorrow. As um, the uh, union, our union, as one, SIT, the independent uh, one worker, uh, has made a deal, kind of deal, the, the, the forest will come to finish strike tomorrow, but a large number of workers have organized today a meeting to uh, continue the strike. Even if they do a deal, many workers want to continue the strike and they will continue to occupy the magic practices of the university and uh, not allow the university to be open. But this has a fact of This has never happened before. When there has been details, not a strike being broken by an advancement of details. But this time, there is not more distance And I think, like, even if one and units make deals, are to get a strike. I think a lot of workers will continue to strike and that is in a violent repression. Again, that will be the first time that the government uses violent repression open universities and are in strike. Uh, as I said, I think this our strike in the bank and other universities. And also in Japan, the natives in the countries are some teachers in secondary uh, high school who are convicted of the land, also on strike. So actually, 
despite your oppression, this strike is still going on and even expanded. Uh, uh, well, I think I'll get to that for a second time. Um, 
And um, another aspect of what a critical strike threat is is when the employer offers concessions to avoid the strike from happening. Um, so you have these kind of combinations of, of factors that go into a definition of what a critical mm -hmm. strike threat is. So in the inverse, an uncritical strike threat would be one um, where the strike threat is unlikely to result uh, in a successful strike. So an uncredible strike threat will result in an un unsuccessful strike. And we know we have a lot of experience with a lot of unsuccessful strikes in the United States over the last few decades. So this concept of credible strike threats is based on a very common concept in labor studies, the mainstream labor studies field, um, which is referred to as organizational disruptive power. Um, and I'll just go through these kind of quickly. They're based on these ideas of an Italian sociologist of labor named Peroni from 83 and 84. He described organizational power among the workers as, uh, and, and uh, Eric Cohen Wright, who recently passed away, uh, borrowed from these ideas. I didn't even think he plagiarized them. But um, he, uh, he called it associational power. And basically, the idea is that workers uh, have uh, recomposed their power in the workplace, to use uh, the kind of language that we use from below. That the, and I'll talk about what these details are, but organizational power is the ability of workers to organize themselves uh, in a workplace, across sectors, and through the economy. Disruptive power is the other se uh, second important factor to incredible strike threats, and that is something that many are working a lot on, um, and a number of your books are um, very much about disruptive power. Um, the ability of organized workers in an industry or even a single employer or across the entire economy uh, to disrupt the capitalist economy. There's also uh, some really good work being done on logistics by Sowers, uh, Cientelli, and Smith. Um, this is also referred to by Peroni as positional power. So there's some um, multiple terms for these kinds of concepts. And as I mentioned, this is the ability of workers to actually disrupt the economy. Um, and uh, uh, disruptive power has uh, uh, the ability to raise the cost dramatically to an employer or an industry, um, as well as the cost of society. For example, you disrupt the fuel supply, you shut down the entire um, economy. So how many strike threats are there? Um, so this is what we set out to do um, to, to actually try to measure something that isn't being measured, the number of strike threats. So we actually don't know, because the US Bureau of Labor Statistics refuses to gather the data. How do I know this? Because I actually asked them. Um, they published a letter uh, in their newsletter last year from me, in which they essentially said, nope, we're not going to measure them. It would require asking for more resources, and uh, we don't think it's important. So we're going to have to do it ourselves. And I'm going to show you why they probably don't want to report this. They probably all get fired by the Trump administration. Um, so, what does the BLS actually measure? And these measurements have changed in recent decades, and I'm doing some work on how they change their measurements. But the BLS only measures strikes and lockouts that happen only when there's a thousand or more workers involved. Are there a lot of companies with a thousand or more workers? Not really. Uh, in the US economy, only 0.3% of all US businesses even have more than 500 workers. So a tiny little sliver of all possible workers are actually being measured. So no wonder strike numbers are really low. They're artificially deflated. Remember when uh, Reagan defined ketchup as a vegetable? So this, this is the equivalent of ketchup as a vegetable. Well, workers aren't going on strike because we're not measuring 99.7% of those workers. So what we did was, I'm not going to go into the methodology, but we looked for trying to come up with a measurement of how many workers are threatening one strike. And this is what we came up with, um, the methodology you can see on the right-hand side. 
So in these five years, um, using interviews, uh, doing media reviews, looking at the BLS's numbers, looking at um, some of the other uh, government data that's available, we found a startling figure that the number of actual strike threats, these are reported, so publicly reported strike threats, um, were more than a third higher than the number of strikes, and twice as many workers were actually threatening to go on strike than actually did go on strike. So how does that compare to the BLS? Whereas the BLS found in this five years only 72 official strikes with 352,000 workers on strike, we actually found 97 strike threats with over 701,000 workers. So how many of these strikes are actually credible? This is a very difficult question to answer. I'm only one person. I had a part-time research assistant helping me with this. Um, we don't actually know yet. And so the reason why I started doing this research uh, was because I want to encourage other people to take this up. And since I've been reporting on this and publishing on it, uh, so far one person in Canada is going to start doing this uh, with Canadian strike threats. Um, but we don't really know. Uh, and we don't really know exactly how to evaluate and assess. So what I've done is I've developed what I call a credibility scorecard. Um, and this is based on, uh, you've probably heard of Jane McAlevey. Um, she's a former labor organizer, now an academic. She goes around and essentially helps workers uh, organize to go on strike. Uh, she calls it structure tests. So um, if you were my student, <laughs> so the basic idea is we need a we need a measurement tool to figure out how many of these strike threats are actually credible. So um, what I what I've done is I've uh, assessed how much time do I have? Uh, you've got uh, you've had eight minutes. So you've got seven. Okay. So um, I, what I've done is I've, I've kind of assembled different factors for organizational disruptive power. Uh, organizational power can also be thought of as a classroom composition. Uh, again, in the language that we use in notes from below, or social composition. Um, so I looked at media coverage, uh, public level public support, uh, the outside allies, outside the workplace, um, whether or not the uh, strike mobilization is from the bottom up and self-directed. Um, also, were the workers engaged in, in tactical uh, and proportional escalation um, as they move closer to the strike? Um, was there a visible supermajority of member commitment of workers in the workplace or in the company uh, or even in the sector? Um, and then was there a, a, an extensive demonstrable determination strike? In other words, did workers wear buttons, did they wear t-shirts, did they go out on picket lines, did they engage in protests, did they hold public meetings, did they sign petitions? All of these are examples of public determination of strike. Um, and was there a sufficient strike plan? Um, and, um, and this, I have to thank a friend of mine, uh, Joe Barry. Uh, this, uh, this next one is what he calls the banking model. Um, and was it, uh, it, are these workers taking from their previous experience of threatening or actually going on a strike? So that's, those are the uh, organizational uh, aspects. And then there are these various disruptive power aspects. In other words, what's the impact on the technical composition of capital um, from these workers uh, organizing? So was there an impact, and this is engaged in, in engaging uh, in disruptive power. So um, were these workers organized in a single or multiple firm or sector? Um, what, uh, is this sector strategically important? Um, what's the impact on the supplying or receiving firms or sectors? So for example, if it's an, uh, oil refineries, we had an oil refinery strike a few years ago. Um, certainly that impacts both the receiving and the servicing. Uh, industries, they get the output. 
and then what's the level of economic and social disruption? And then uh, what's the strike for an open-ended duration? And what are the political costs of allowing the strike to happen um, or um, as the strike goes on? Uh, and then what's the, what's the likelihood of state intervention or the threat to intervene? And the likelihood ultimately of system change? Because ultimately, a strike is uh, not important in terms of social transformation if it's just about wages and the workers go back to work. So I've developed this scorecard. Um, and what I've done is I've listed all, uh, all those things you saw in the previous two slides. Um, and the idea here is to look at the organizational power and disruptive power and then go through as, you, as if you're involved in a strike or you're studying a strike, to go through and check off and provide one point for each. You know, there's a place for notes. Um, and then add up the point totals. And, uh, and this might be a beginnings for assessing the credibility <laughs> of a strike threat. So um, I look at it in this kind of, this, this kind of uh, XY uh, analysis. And you can think of this kind of as a matrix between low organizational power and low disruptive power, high disruptive power and low organizational power, high organizational power and high disruptive power. So what kind of conclusions can we draw by looking at the interactions between different levels of organizational disruptive power? So the observation that I come to is that first, that critical strike threats must have a high level of organizational power. That's the starting point. If, if the workers just aren't organized, they're not working with one another, it doesn't matter whether you have a high level of disruptive power. So uh, credibility rises when there's a high level of organizational power. Um, if it's paired with either a low level of disruptive power, and in the different strikes that we, uh, strike threats that we identified, and remember strike threats do not result in strikes. So the ones that we're measuring here. So anything that resulted in a strike is not in that data set of those 97 strike threats. I forgot to mention that at the outset. So um, some of the examples of the strike threats that um, we assess the credibility of uh, that had a low level of structure power were the nurses, supermarket, and teachers. Right? They can go on strike, they can have very high levels of organizational power, the workers can be very well organized, but they just don't have that much disruptive impact on the, on the natural economy. They can disrupt the company or the school district or the state, but it, it's limited. Um, but they're still credible. Um, also, they have a high level of disruptive power, and so some of the examples of strike threats that were made in this five-year period would be airline pilots, right? Uh, airline pilots, relatively few in number, can disrupt the entire global economy. The oil refinery, that was primarily located in the West Coast, and yet the entire national oil supply was disrupted. Prices shot up, companies were cutting hours and production levels. Longshore workers, cell phone workers, they, had, they were examples of high disruptive power. But, if, um, if uh, a strike threat has low organizational power, it's incredible um, when there's a low level of disruptive power, in my case, I'm going to talk about the case example of when professors threaten to strike. After all, we, don't, we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. We don't really disrupt that much. <laughs> Students want time off. No, I don't mind it either. <laughs> and then if there's a high level of disruptive power, trucking. There were a lot of trucking strikes during this five year period but not a lot of workers were involved. Yet, they had high levels of disruptive power. They, they, they paralyzed the Midwest. Um, but um, they settled very low uh, for very, very low um, uh, concessions from the employers. So the result is, despite all the talk that's been going on the last few years in the United States, where's all the strikes? Oh, is that a strike wave or not a strike wave? The reality is that if you go on strike 
and your strike threat is not credible, your, the, the likelihood of your strike being successful is extremely low. So um, the result is that more strikes don't necessarily mean more successful strikes. One minute, perfect. So the last thing um, that I want to is I want to show you um, how I, I graded my own uh, strike threat. Uh, <laughs> in 2016, the California State University system, one of the, I think, second biggest, maybe after yours, in the country, uh, we threatened to go on a strike. So we have 22 campuses, and at that time I taught at two campuses. Um, and so I went through and graded it. And you can see it's very, very low. Six out of 14 organizational, and a two out of 17 uh, for the strike. So no wonder we settled for two plus one plus one pay increase, but increased productivity levels, in other words, larger class sizes. It was a wash. We didn't get anything out of it. Uh, we didn't address any of the issues of contingency. We didn't, we didn't address healthcare. We didn't address uh, you know, work power issues at all. Um, and so, within a few hours of the time we were supposed to go on strike, we called it off. Um, and then the settlement was approved. In fact, um, you can see that was our logo. <laughs> I don't want to go on strike. I really don't. Just give me something and I won't go on strike. <laughs> that was literally the t-shirt. I forgot to bring it with me, but I still have that t-shirt. So, conclusions. Just to make it kind of quickly. Class struggle is certainly on the rise in the United States, and certainly we're seeing that in Mexico, we've seen that in South Africa, um, we've heard it in other places around the world, uh, this conference. Um, and we're seeing strike-related activity is becoming more common, but the number of strikes is still really low. Why is that? Because the number of credible strike threats is on the rise. Workers are threatening to go on strike with different levels of credibility, and employers are settling. So they don't get reported, so we don't know about it, and we think that class struggle is virtually uh, non-existent. Um, so the number of workers engaged in strike-related activity is actually a lot higher than if you only look at the number involved in strikes. Um, so there are many credible strike threats that are achieving outcomes that are on par with those who are going on strike, sometimes even better than they would if they actually go on strike. So there are many different uh, lessons we learned from that. Yeah.